Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. Live in three, two, one. Oh, man. It's that time of year. What key is that in? Is, is it in a key? Us? Yeah, you're the musician. Dudley, what were you saying uh, at our Christmas luncheon? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I know that. That's a great That's a great. Uh, yeah, one movie. of my favorite One of movies. my favorite movies. Fragile. Fragile. Must be from France. Yeah. Uh, Italian. 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 Must be yeah. Italian. That's a great movie. Surprise you guys are still awake. After that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we are. Yeah. So well, let me get started. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to our humble podcast studio here in West Point, Mississippi, uh, home of the Gamekeepers. And today we've got noted waterfowl expert that's right dr brian davis in the house from mississippi state oh bulldog made the drive over go dogs y'all are much too kind but thank you Uh, happy to be here well we appreciate you being here it's a great time of year it you know we all love ducks and we love talking about ducks we love thinking about ducks we've been talking about it a lot lately we have and it seems like we're missing some key ingredients to have. Yeah, what is waterfowl <laughs> is the main term. Waterfowl, and we don't have any water. Water. Yeah. yeah. Are you hearing this a lot from people? Oh yeah, it's tough. So yeah, I grew up in Missouri, and of course the secrets out on Missouri and the Central Flyway states and all that. But I, my dad and brother are so frustrated right now. I was talking to them the other day, and <clears throat> we've got like. 1200 acres basically to ourselves in Western Missouri and my dad and brother basically trying to blow up beaver dams just to get a trickle of water into a panagrass field. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that dry, you know? So even the MDC areas, I think, I don't know the proportions, but they do have some water, but some areas there, it's just hard, you know, and they don't have it. So you've got that much less real estate and that many, what's, what's killer about all this is, is, you know, our enthusiasm is still there. A lot of people want to do it, but then the acres shrink down. It's like all this competition for, for a little space, you know, oh, yeah. it's frustrating. So it seems true. like there's more young people duck hunting oh, now it's than unbelievable. ever. That's got to be putting a lot of pressure in different spots. I don't know how many kids in my classes, they're like, yeah, doc, we're going out to, you know, state X, Y, and Z. I'm like, yeah, I used to hunt there when I was a kid before anybody knew about it, That's before exactly it was any right. magazine article. And now it's like, it's you know, there's there's really no safe space anymore. I, I, <laughs> no. My humble opinion, uh, some would disagree, but it it seems like the only 
sort of really kind of tough place where a duck can get away anymore is like the Playa Lakes because hmm. it's so big, it's so wide open, it's so private, you know, the private land. You got to really work to get permission. But so many other places nowadays, I mean, these kids are just driving to Iowa, driving to Kansas, driving, you know, to X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, good God, man, you guys are crazy. Yeah, they're mad at them. <laughs> they really are. But, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. like there'll be like the boat parking lot's full. Uh, the, oh, I, can, yeah. I wasn't there, but the report I got, because I'm too old to fight that battle anymore, but there was almost 60 boats at the the little uh, boat ramp north of north of here that were, yeah. And yeah. I can remember back in the day, man. You were the only one out there. I, I had a little duck boat when I first moved up yeah. here. And there might be one other person. Yeah. And that no, was it's, it. it's just crazy. It is and crazy. in fact, you were, I, I used to worry that what if I break down? There's nobody, nobody here. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you'll, you'll see plenty of people now. <laughs> that yeah. I love. I mean, you love people, you know, wanting to participate in the sport and the money. You know, they're buying ducks down, yeah. so that's going to the resources. That's all good. And I know they're not killing that many ducks. <laughs> but everybody can't hunt the same spot. Yeah, that's right. And, it's and, tough. Yeah. So, and that kind of makes me wonder, like, do, does the, you know, Corps of Engineers maybe need to have a couple of days during the week or something? That well, they, 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 they actually the shut rest. it down in the afternoon. So you can't hunt past, uh, what is it, Mac, 12 or 1 on the waterway? Yeah, here, so. you know, uh, here locally. Can you still run your boat and scout and do all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I just don't think you can hunt. And I think that's just, this is one of the first years of that. Yeah. So they're trying to regulate the pressure a little bit. Um, but, I, I mean, you know, I, when I see those younger guys, I get, I mean, I remember I was that way too. Oh, I would yeah. get up at 1 and 2 in the morning, go and drive public land, you know, and, and, and hunt and have a great time. Uh, but it's um, some serious competition yeah. out there today. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if y'all have seen it yet. If you haven't, you should. But uh, I went to that Shin Gear Film Festival uh, a In month Memphis. or so ago, yeah. and uh, Brandon Martin produced a video called "Under Pressure." Hmm. Uh, I think he was, I believe he was partnering with uh, you know Shin and then the, uh, the Cohen Lab, yeah. and it was insane. Uh, the amount of hunters like they would you know fly these drones over these areas and you would see decoy spreads you know proven yeah. for the most unless they leave their spread out year round which not as many people do anymore but uh every single spot was getting hunted yeah like even yeah. midweek i mean the the ducks don't really have that many safe areas they can go anymore i so. think we talked about this last time you were on but we we maybe or maybe we just talked about it internally but didn't we talk about how we think it's pushing them to travel at night and feed at night more yeah. than anything that's that's some of what i wanted to ask him about today we're hurting ourselves oh yeah no i mean the old cliche ducks don't like to get shot you know that's pre pretty <laughs> obvious but um god what time do you have to be worried <laughs> yeah it's pretty depressing <laughs> isn't it yeah so there's there's all kinds of yeah, matter of fact i'll admit myself and two other people were writing sort of an opinion paper right now about sanctuaries like, what do we want sanctuaries to be? You know, do we have too many already? Um, hmm. Big or small? Do we need one big one in the middle of somewhere X, or do we need three or four small ones and distribute it? All these kinds of things. So there's all kinds of studies that, um, you know, all, all kinds of duck clubs have their own definitions of sanctuary, right? Like some people we know, they're like, you will absolutely not go into that field at any time for any reason, not to check water, not to look for deer, nothing. You don't mm -hmm. go there. Other people are like, well, we're done hunting at nine, but then people are running around like scouting deer, deer hunting or scouting for ducks the next day. And I tell them, I'm like, 
you know, that's great not to, not to, uh, you know, dissuade you from hunting, but just remember that you riding around on a four wheeler, it may not be the exact same as a shotgun blast or a box of shells going off, but it is disturbance, you know? So Mm -hmm. there, everybody has kind of their own idea of what it is, what it should be. Um, and there's really no good, there's been some experimental, there was a graduate student, his last name was Dooley, did some really good work about 10, 15 years ago, but basically he had radio marked ducks and then they deliberately went into places and didn't, they didn't experiment. Like if we go in here and shoot once or five times, I can't remember all his experimental treatments, but bottom line is when you harass them a little bit and a little bit more, they'll leave for a day or two and Mm -hmm. you know, some of them come back, some of them don't. So um, there's all sorts of disturbance, you know, and, and that, that's not just a linear thing. Like, Hey, if we go into these fields three times, the birds are going to do this. It depends on, you know, are you hunting bean fields? Are you hunting a thousand acre, uh, acre tract of woods? Ducks are going to behave and respond differently to the different habitats. So, you know, I always tell duck club folks, hunters, I'm like, you know, depending on your, on the resource that you're hunting, you guys know we've all been in the woods. I mean, you can shoot at a flock of mallards coming into trees and 10 minutes later, look under, you know, a hundred yards away on top of the water and birds are swimming around. Mm-hmm. If we're in a bean field or a rice field or a moist soil impoundment, they ain't going to be sitting there. Right. Or they're going to be shovelers sitting out in the middle of flooded beans and they're not going to come around your decoys anyway. So depends on the species, depends on the type of disturbance, the type of habitat. Um, I know from, not to, I'm starting to go down rabbit holes. I, I figured I would. I try not to, but my PhD student, Joe Lancaster, with his radio mark mallards, for example, when birds were at muscadine when it was being hunted versus Howard Miller versus Mahana, they, act, they acted differently. For hmm. example, you think about the bottom of the world down there by Mahana, it's largely, you know, there's a lot of agriculture, of course, but it it's a lot of tracks of forest, right? Looks much different from muscadine, which is reclaimed aquaculture, open and moist soil. These are all WMAs in mm-hmm. Mississippi. Yes. In the Delta. And so like Joe's radio mark birds, some of them hung out in those woods on the day it was being hunted. You know, they just figure out, hey, if we don't go over there, we're not going to get shot. If we go over there, we're going to get killed. So th- they figure that out. But even depending on the structure of the habitat that you're in, it, the birds can really respond Every mallard and every, much less every mallard, all mallards are different. There's a lot of individual variation in all these birds. Um, But even just between species, you know, pintails don't like disturbance, man. They'll flush a half mile from me, you know. Mm -hmm. Mallards, gadwall, they may be able to withstand a little more. So it all depends on the species. Even individuals within a species will behave differently. Uh, And then the habitat. Your daughter's been begging you to hunt since her little brother shot the big eight last year. You've ran a fire, dissed the fields, got stuck, got unstuck. Planted food plots, fertilized, and prayed for rain. You moved trees, limbed roads, even bought one of those fancy cell cameras. So what's your excuse? LS Tractor.
Moultrie was first in feeders since 1979 and is the leader in total game management. They're taking feeding to another level with the new Ranch Series line of durable and versatile feeders perfect for both wildlife and domestic livestock. So Dudley, you can feed your goats. Whether you're a deer hunter, a hobby farmer, a land manager, or a rancher, Moultrie has you covered with several kit options including a rotating auger, broadcast, or a gravity kit. And these feeders are 300 or 450 pounds. They're big feeders. All right, so guys, Moultrie is offering our listeners a 15% site-wide discount at MoultriePeeders.com. Use code MossyOak with a capital M, MossyOak, at MoultriePeeders.com and get that 15% discount. I don't know where you started with that, but anyway, we yeah, no, you, I mean, we pressure, you know, yeah. pressure. It's the we all talk about it all the time. It's the fourth part of you know wildlife management: food, water, cover, pressure. Yeah, uh, and it's an important consideration. Yeah, no question about it. And 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 I like to I like to pick on Missouri because I grew up there, and MDC does a fantastic. They're some of the premier wetland managers in the country, and part of the reason is they've they got the one they got the one eight percent sales tax. But they have a heritage of really good, hardcore, as do a lot of states, but just hardcore wetland manager, waterfowl biologist. And and this is my own, like, Davis hypothesis. This would be a good experiment to do. But my dad and brother have talked about through the years with hunting pressure and the birds just becoming more and more nocturnal. Even though where you got some of the best moist soil, seasonal wetlands on the planet right up there at that latitude. A lot of birds in the environment yet they're really nocturnal. And one of my hypotheses is, and a bunch of my biologist friends would probably yell at me, but I wonder sometimes if if the habitat is so good, and we know everything's risk-reward, right? Deer, turkeys, mm-hmm. risk-reward. I'm, I'm going to go over there. I'm not going over there. You know what happens if you do. Ducks are the same way. And I've told my dad, I said, you know, they do such a great job with habitat. If I'm getting shot at, and there's that much food in the water. I ain't coming out there. Why would you go out there in the daytime right. and risk getting shot? Hell, you come out of there in the evening and go sit down and at and, and dark. Like he says, man, 430, 445, it looks like there's a million birds in that county, you know. Mm-hmm. And oof, they all come into those moist soil wetlands. And um, I don't know if that's really true, but it just seems to me when there's so much food – and all you got to do is put your bill on the water. Just right. start doing this. And, and on top of that, you're going to get groceries. Why yeah. would you want to fly further south too? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, eventually it's like I tell students, seeds in the environment, whether it's acorns, kernels of corn, whatever, at the start of the season, you have this much. And then every day it's like N minus one, right? Seeds continually be depleted until they're gone. So depending on how many seeds are out there, where they are, how many miles there are to feed, that can happen rapidly or may not happen, you know, uh, it may linger all winter and, and that many fewer birds come south, you know. So not to pick – I pick on MDC affectionately. Um, I work for them and uh, they gave me my start in this field and they just do such an outstanding job. And, and, and not to say, hey, let's just do marginal habitat. That's not my point. But it just makes me wonder, you know, the, they, they've weighted the risk. It's like, hey, there's so much food under the water. All we got to do is go out there and put our bill in the water. We get you know tons of it in right. no time. You know. Anyway, well, I don't. That's not fact. I'm just. My well, it makes sense for our observation for sure. So yeah. then, where are they during the day? Well, they'll sit. You know, they they sit in what we call safe space. You know, they'll sit on a lot of WMA lands. And again, think of the private landowners. Maybe not this year because everybody's so water stressed. Um, but they'll sit on. 
you know, sanctuaries on refuges and WMAs um, and a lot of private lands. You know, I mean, if, if you've got enough water uh, and in areas that, that you don't hunt at all um, or areas that you absolutely are done by eight or nine in the morning, you know, there's some, some areas we call spatial sanctuaries. Like, okay, nobody can go back there for any reason at all. And then from there it gets a little more loose. And then there's like temporal sanctuaries. So you could hunt a duck club every day, but if you're absolutely out of there by nine and nobody's scouting deer riding around on four wheelers, really you could argue that the rest of the day is a sanctuary. Hmm. Now birds aren't as conditioned and maybe as predictive with that environment as they would be with a national wildlife refuge that hadn't been hunted in 40 years or 50 years, whatever. Um, they know where that is, you know? So, so they seek out, you know, safe space and, um, and they'll sit on those sanctuaries, even like in Mahana in those woods on the WMA or war on private land. Some of those radio mark birds would just sit in there all day. And even though people were hunting around there, but the woods were big enough, it kind of absorb everybody, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> so, so listen, do you talk, mm-hmm. I'd like to know just really briefly your background. Did you grow up as a young duck hunter and become fascinated by the birds and it led to a career in waterfowl management and a phd and so i grew up in st louis missouri and and had my parents not introduced me to waterfowl hunting i'd probably be a banker or whatever i'd be doing probably in st <laughs> louis you know growing up on the cardinals and the blues and all that and so to this day one of the most fascinating things i've ever seen in my life is when i was a kid hate to reveal my age but in the mid-70s Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge. <clears throat> they would winter about 200,000 200, of the EPP Canada geese in that whole region of north central Missouri. So, you know, think of yourself as a little kid and seeing, you know, these 9, 10, 11 pound birds flying around times 200,000. Mm-hmm. Like, holy smokes. So, and it was cold back then. It, you know, it seems like much colder then. And I always tell my parents when I go home, I'll be going home next week. I'm like, it seems like all I did is ice skate and play hockey and the ducks always had a hole in the pond on the side over there. And now you go home and you hardly even see ice much, you know, much less be able to skate on it, you know? So times have changed. So it's really, really cold. The geese still came down that far. And to see that many birds, you know, I was just like, Oh man, this is unbelievable. So I grew up doing that. And then like in the late seventies, they took us to, Florida and my dad just wanted to hunt scop in Florida. So we went to Mosquito Lagoon at Cocoa Beach. <laughs> yeah. Your hands are like welts from the mosquitoes, you know. And then I did that as a kid. I'm like, man, this is this is wild. One minute I'm in North Missouri and then down here I'm getting mosquito, but you know, so on and on and on. And then I went to Mizzou as an undergrad. And um I already knew then I wanted to be in the waterfowl field. And of course the great Dr. Lee Fredrickson was there at Missouri. Um and then I Thought I was going to stay and work for MDC, you know, outstanding uh, organization. But went to California, worked for California Waterfowl Association for six years. Oh, yeah. And then came to Mississippi State in 1994, got my master's and PhD, left in 2001. I did my PhD defense three days after 9-11. Wow. You talk about some philosophical discussions. (laughs) It was like, do ducks really even matter? You know, where do ducks rank with people and humans and, you know, It was wild. But anyway, so then I worked for DU from 2001 to 2009 and came back to Starkville and been here ever since. 
So I feel like I've been alive 200 years. I tell my students <laughs> yeah. I'm only 125. Welcome <laughs> home. Yeah, no doubt. So growing up in St. Louis, if I said the word raccoon ranch, would you know where yeah. I was talking uh-huh. about? Yeah. Lanny, yeah. it's the most unbelievable place I've ever been. Where is it? I this? got to go. I've never one. even heard of it. I got invited by this guy named Arch Hager. Uh-huh. And he, I'd been helping him with his food plots for, brothers, yeah. for a long time. And, and he was a great guy, just a prince of a fella. Yep. And he invited he, several years. He said, please come go. And one time I found myself, I was going to be driving through St. Louis. And, I, and he said, come, let's go duck hunting in the morning. I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. It was the nicest place I'd ever. And yeah. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Budweiser farm or. Oh, yeah, I remember Adol- you talking about Adolphus that. Bush. Did you meet Adolphus? When no, you- I didn't. Okay. No, I think I pulled up and knocked on the front door and somebody came to the door and said, can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> the delivery entrance is around back. Uh, but, yeah. but I ended up getting to stay and it was just the most incredible place yeah. I'd ever been. Yeah. And the ducks were just, yeah. it was gorgeous. Yeah, there's, I mean, just like. A lot of other places in the country, I mean, there's just such a history of hunting right there. You know, now it's all concrete and, and millions of people. But, um, yeah, historically, those river bottoms, you know, that's the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi. I mean, Lewis and Clark, I mean, the history is amazing there. That was very close to Saint, the, the, the oh, city yeah. of St. Louis. Yeah, that's what I'm here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, my dad, he knows all those folks. He grew up, you know, running around those bottoms and – yeah, they were so nice to me, and I was just really yeah. impressed with that property. So, yeah. Well, yeah. well, let's move on. One of the things that we had wanted to talk to you about is uh, we, we kind of wanted to do a couple of podcasts with you and do one on dabbling ducks and then one on diving ducks. Sure. And so we wanted to talk about dabbling ducks, and we wanted to learn stuff about these ducks that we don't necessarily know. We think we know a lot of things about them, but every time we have someone of your stature in here, we're always amazed at how much. No, I'm I'm trying to figure them out myself, so. <laughs> <laughs> so what different, differentiates a, a dabbler from a diver? So a lot of morphological characteristics. So one of the, some of the big ones are um, where their legs are on their body, you know, so talking about dabbling ducks, a lot of them, their legs are closer to the middle of their body because um, even wood ducks, you know, you think, oh, wood ducks have to hatch. These birds have to hatch over water. Actually, when you, when you think about it from a reproductive reproduction standpoint, um, ducks are precocial, which means they leave the nest the day after they hatch. Waterfowl are precocial. Altricial birds like cardinals, robins, blue jays, the parents come and bring them food until they fledge and then they can leave the nest, that kind of stuff. And it, that's very simplified version of that. But so waterfowl will walk. So dabbling ducks, geese, when they leave the nest, they've got to be able to move. And think about a dry year like this. Um, you know, especially think about wood ducks or or mallards. You know, it's like that grassland habitat or that tree with my favorite cavity, it ain't moving, right? That tree, that cavity still in that tree Yet last year there was water right underneath here. This year it's dry as a bone. I got to walk a mile away to get to fir- my first water. So most people don't realize that how suited um, dabbling ducks, geese, birds like that are to walking. Because a lot of times they got to move a long way between from their nest to their first bit of water, depending hmm. on droughts and all that kind of stuff. Diving ducks typically canvasbacks, redheads. They're nesting right near water or close to it. So the broods are a little bit more mobile when they're young, but adults, you know, they're typically diving. So, so their legs are, are typically back um, further on their body than our dabbling ducks. Matter of fact, the wood duck, uh, 
the great Frank Belros figured out that their legs are like the most centered on their body of any North American duck because you guys probably know this, but I don't know how many people have said, Doc, you know, I'm sitting here turkey hunting the woods all of a sudden. There, I'll look up and here's a flock of wood ducks like walking through the forest floor, like eating acorns, you mm-hmm. know. Like, yeah, they can be like turkeys, you know, they're really good walkers. So, that's one of the big Remember ones. Clay Davis said that those <laughs> what sorry, those okay. wood ducks, he was sitting in the shooting house one day overlooking some deer radish and uh he was looking uh through yeah. his binox and he could see wood ducks eating the leaves of the deer radish yeah. in the field. Yeah. Huh. So oh, yeah. on Tibby Creek. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that's that's fine. And then uh wing loading, you know, a lot of times you'll see diving ducks gotta gotta run a little bit first and then take off. So there's there's several morphological Differences in in Mother Nature evolution, whatever, however, whatever term you want to use. What's really cool about all these birds is that, you know, we have thirteen dabbling ducks in North America. We've got several diving ducks, but so many of those birds can be accommodated on the same wetland because one, morphologically, you know, a pintail's neck is that long, a green winged teal's neck is that long. You know, um, body sizes are different, um, foraging. So all those things contribute to like different foraging habitats and food preferences and things like that. So that's what's really cool about um, really dynamic natural wetland habitats that, you know, usually a wetland's not just this bowl thing and it's real flat. There's like an undulating topography and all those undulations create different water depths. And then when you think about like your moist soil impoundments or the woods in the summertime, when the water drains down, it exposes those mud flats. Well, some of those that are down in some of those deeper swales, they don't dry out as quickly as those on the top. And we're talking just a couple of inches. You know, when I take my kids out to Noxaby or whatever and say, look, in a wetland, you just need one or two inches of, of elevation difference. And the plant communities are totally different, mm-hmm. you know, depending on wet and dry cycles and things like that. So all that said, those undulations and those habitats, that creates that biodiversity where birds with short necks and long necks, you know, a, a swan with a, that can reach down three feet under the water and grab food off the bottom, it's feeding there and the, out in the middle of the open, whereas the green-winged teal is up on the shelf where you got just a couple of inches of water where, you know. So that's what's really cool about all these species is that um, if you've got a good, diverse wetland that you can accommodate a lot of different species. A lot of different niches in one Exactly, yep. No, that's exactly right, yep. Nosler's known for their bullets, and now they're making suppressors. Nosler suppressors are made for hunting. Adding a Nosler suppressor to your rifle will make you a quieter, more accurate, and more effective hunter. Protect your hearing and disturb less game with a Nosler suppressor. The time to hunt quiet is now. Learn more at Nosler.com. Hey guys, Dudley from Gamekeepers here. I want to tell you about the all-new Gunner Dog Bowl. It's designed for home and built for travel. It's customizable, leak-resistant, light on weight, solid on durability, and rust-proof. Like other Gunner products, they're made in Nashville and designed for everywhere. And it seems like dabbling ducks are typically what we have the most of around here. And so... You know, uh, mallards, wood ducks, gadwall, pintails, teal. Yeah. So some of these, when we think about them like this time of year, we typically um, 
we think about them as migrants, we typically categorize them and, and we loosely do this. There's what we call facultative and obligate. So a facultative migrant is a bird like a mallard. It's like they don't really have a real fix. It's not like I'm leaving on November 15th every year. Um, there's differences again in individuals. There's differences in males and female females. There's differences in adults and juveniles. Um, but typically facultative birds are those that, that winter in dynamic environments, um, like wood ducks and mallards and pintails. It's one of the reasons why pintails are so nomadic is they really can't predict the habitat. Like this year, look how dry it is. You know, next year we may have wall to wall water. An obligate bird is more like, like a swan or larger ducks that go to more predictable habitats. And in the real world, an example would be like Chesapeake Bay, San Francisco Bay, the Gulf Coast. Historically, and I'm thinking like, you know, anthropogenically before we got here, a lot of those birds would leave the breeding grounds and go to those places and they would basically stay there. They might make a stop or two, but they were basically going to the Chesapeake Bay or San Francisco Bay or Matagorda Bay, whatever, wherever. Sort of more predictable habitat environments, more submerged aquatic plants, more semi-permanent wetlands. Whereas the bird, the dabbling ducks especially, typically more facultative, so their their migration schedules aren't as fixed. And then even between the dabblers, um, it really varies. Actually, you could argue that a blue-winged teal is kind of an obligate species because it does leave so early. You know, there's really not much we're going to do in terms of habitat um, to like stall the migrations of bluings. I mean, they're one of the f- last ones to get to the prairies and one of the last ones to leave and they jet through, you know, that's why we can hunt them in September. So, th- so they're the last ones to get there, but the first ones yeah. to leave. Is- yeah. You'll see them hanging out here, right. Until, you know, March, April, sometimes if there's water and you get those strong South winds and mm. you know, off they go. It's I've always been told they just don't like any change in weather at all or, or cooler, a little bit cooler temp. Yeah, so think about the green wing teal. So, you know, blue wings are, you know, and there's there's a principle, an ecological principle called Bergman's rule. And basically what that means in a nutshell is that larger animals can live in more northern environments because they're bigger body mass. They can sustain cold, right? We've discussed this with deer, you know, whitetail. So mm-hmm. a Florida key deer is not going to live in Saskatchewan, right? So so even though what's, what's fascinating about these birds and, and – and there's a really popular one we like to hunt. Here's part of a trivia question. It's a goose. Totally defies Bergman's rule. What is it? Uh, Greater white front of goose. Specs. Think how yeah. big the specs are <laughs> and, and hardy they are. And yet they're down here and mm-hmm. way before it gets really cold, right? So they sort of defy Bergman's rule. So um even little green wing teal, there's green wing teal that will nest, that will migrate later than specks do in their, their minutia compared to specks, you know? So, so the rules don't always add up or hold up for every species, but, but by and large, it's, it's fairly true. But mallards are, they're, you know, I kind of refer to them as the sort of the hogs, the white tailed deer, they're the pigs of the waterfowl world. They eat almost everything. They're big so they can withstand the cold um, they've adapted well to agriculture like the geese have, uh, better than a lot of other species. So they're, they're pigs, right? And, and some, and again, there's a lot of individual variation and, 
in photo period, you know, when it starts getting darker early in the fall, that's a big cue for migration in a lot of birds. Um, weather, but even with mallards, what we're what we've learned through the years is that it really takes quite a bit of snow, quite a bit of cold wind, quite a bit of below 32 degree temperatures to really move lots of mallards, you know. So some of those birds, and what's fascinating about them. You guys have seen some here early in the fall. We call them Halloween ducks. It's like, why are you here in Mississippi? It's not even cold yet in Canada, right? People are still dry field hunting up in Canada and there's there's mallards in Mississippi. So, and then there's some that that come late, like in January, or don't come at all, just within mallards. You know, then you have all the other species. And and so they all have these different migration schedules. And the other big factor that that relates to is is their food and what sort of um, habitat specials are they? For example, think about gadwalls, shovelers, um, widgeon. You know, widgeon and gadwall are, are vegetarians of the duck world. They'll eat seeds, of course, but they're more vegetarian than most. And even those two are really different in what they do in winter. Um, and then shovelers, they're like the carnivores. They eat a lot of bugs. So the birds that are really dependent on on more wetland aquatic habitats like gadwall and shoveler and blue wings. Um, they're they're going to move when it freezes. You know, if it doesn't, they can withstand the cold and and hang out further north, but not as much as like a mallard or maybe a pintail that's really well adapted to grain fields. You know, unless you get a bunch of snow up north, I mean, mallards are going to they're going to sit on those reservoirs at night or the daytime and go dry field feed and come back. So it really takes, um, it takes these cold waves really. And in some Aaron Pierce's work, when he was a PhD student here, he did these aerial surveys for three years. Um, and we're looking at those again. Now we have 20 years of data and there's going to be some amazing things here. I think one, because you got 20 years of data on an animal or animals, you can start looking at like habitat changes, like crop distribution in the Mississippi Delta, water. What has hydrology done in the last 20 years in the Mississippi Delta? So we're going to get into all that. But Aaron found that for every, wrap your mind around this, if I remember this correctly, for every one degree um, less in temperature, there was an, at the latitude of St. Louis, like St. Louis in, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, whatever that latitude was, for every one degree decrease in temperature, there's an additional 12,000 mallards in the Mississippi Delta. For every 1% increase in snowfall at northern latitudes, there's like 1,400 more mallards in the Mississippi Delta. And so like Aaron said, you know, it's not just one cold spell. You know, like you guys hear the snow geese now. I mean, snow geese didn't fly over Starkville 30 years ago. It's kind of a new thing, but you get those initial cold pushes in the fall and boom, you can hear the the snow geese flying overhead. So they're moving, but it doesn't mean all of them are moving, right? It's just, it, we need these incremental weather, you know, pushes like cold temperature. It needs to stay below zero for a while, like a week, really. You really start to see a mass movement of mallards when it's below freezing for about a week. And for every inch of snowfall to the north, they can't, you know, they run out of food at some point, but it just doesn't do that that much anymore. Right. Mm-mm. You know, it, it might get cold for a few days, like bitter cold. And then it seems like mid next week, it's 60 again. You know, 
I mean, I talked to my parents and my dad's like, my God, we're out here in, you know, just a shirt and it's almost Christmas in central Missouri, you know, and it's like, it's just so different, you know? So those birds, especially if they have grain, they're adapted to grain, like a lot of the dabbling ducks are, and there's no snowfall, you know, some are going to move. They just have an inclination. I, again, I anthropomorphize it. Think about people. There's some people that can't travel the world enough, right? Like they got to see Italy 10 times before they die. There's other people that don't want to leave their recliner, you know, and in the waterfowl world, there's, there are some, you know, some mallards are just pigs. They don't move. And when they get down here, they don't move a lot. Um, and then there's other birds like pintails that are just constantly on the move looking for new, the new two to four inches of shallow water somewhere, you know, kind of really nomadic. And then there's variations within those species. So anyway, not to diverge too far, but. Yeah, that's really interesting. What what would you, if you lined up some uh, food from, from acorns to corn to uh, soybeans, all, all the different kind of grains available, what, if that duck can make up his mind and go to what he wants, what's it, what are they, what are the top two or three going to be? Well, you, you got to think about that in terms of, so you want me to just say corn, flood corn, everybody no, playing. No, no, really, really. I'm hoping you'll say, I mean, I was expecting you to say acorns. Maybe, right? So usually it, it depends. Yeah, no, acorns are really important. So one thing I always tell people, especially if there's time to like talk to people about things, I'm like, think back just four or 500 years ago. So there was no here. grain. Right. Before we got here. The landscape right. has changed so much. So what did, what did ducks eat? You just name one. Give me some Acorns. other ones. Acorns. What Insects. else? Insects. Insects. Invertebrates. Yep. What else? Got to be native grasses. Yeah. Seeds. Yeah. yeah. Think about our world before we got here. Think about the northern prairies. There was a lot of upland, dry upland areas, of course, where they nested. But all along the river systems, you know, we didn't have big levees. So water might come up really slow and fan way out, you know, shallow, shallow water. And then when it came back, you know, it would grow all these grasses and mm-hmm. weed seeds, you know. I mean, and I tell people, I'm like, you know, especially people that are new at this, I'm like, just drive the Mississippi Delta in the peak of farming season. And most of those weeds that are growing in that ditch, that's what ducks ate 10,000 years ago when they got here after the last Wisconsin glaciation. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that really matter, you know. Yes, the grains are important. They provide a lot of high energy. So... So the first way you want to think about this is is a balanced diet like us. You know, like I tell the students, I'm like, you remember the guy in the McDonald's commercial who tried to live there for like 30 days and his, his health just, you know. <laughs> so you have to have a balanced diet. And historically, that's what, that's what our natural wetlands gave the birds, you know. Protein like in seeds, um, invertebrates, calcium like the hard shell critters like snails. Um, weed seeds are high in energy. So a moist soil... And, and I hope landowners listen to this because yes, I grew up in corn country and, and I'm not an arrogant, those of you know, I'm not an arrogant person, but I've shot more four duck limits of mallards and flooded corn than I can ever remember. But I can also tell you there were a lot of days in Missouri. I'm like, I wish I could shoot six ducks. You don't see another duck. It's like mallards. There's no teal, no pintail. Again, that's no one's fault, but when you get in this real high agrarian seed environment um, and water depths can really, and we'll talk about that in a minute, they can really influence things like green wing teal. Um, you know, it, the, the, the seeds, the more soil seeds produce, they have about 70% of the amount of energy that a rice or a corn seed has. 
So granted, panic grass seeds, you know, for those of you that are not watching the video, I'm, I'm, there's barely a space between my, my fingers, tiny, tiny seeds. So you have to eat a lot of those to equate to one kernel of corn. I get that. But the seed value, even in those tiny seeds, is about 70% of what corn and rice is. So, hmm. so I often tell landowners, I'm like, you know, if, you, if you're good at growing corn, you want to do it, and you have a lot of acres, go for it. That's great. It works. I've shot a lot of ducks in corn and dirty corn, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of times, growers don't have really good luck with it. You know, and I don't know how many phone calls I've gotten through the years. Like, Brian, you were right. Man, I, my corn crop went to to heck, you know, and we got all these weeds, these wetland weeds. Go, well, we have more ducks we've ever had. You know, we have had the best duck season ever. I'm like, I told you, you know, so, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so hot crops are, they're awesome. They're wonderful. If you have enough acres and, and I don't know what that magic, you know, a lot of times if people say, well, I got like 50 acres I can flood. I'm like, don't try to plant corn, grow weeds, grow more soil, grow millet, annual smart weed, whatever you can do, figure that out. If you got 10,000 acres, yeah, plant several hundred acres of corn, you know, it's all relevant to scale and things like that. But so the, so the corn rice, very high in carbohydrates. So if you're getting ready to run a marathon, you're not going to eat um, radishes. You're going to eat baked potatoes, you know, sweet potatoes, right? Whatever. So those those high energy grain seeds provide a lot of carbohydrates. They provide other things, but it's the the inverts, the green browse, um, duckweed. Gadwall love to eat duckweed. It's one of the one of the big drivers of them being in parts of Delta National Forest, areas with duckweed, real high in protein. So depending on the species um, and the time of the year. So let me say this too. So, you, you know, mallard, we all know the mallards get to green head in the fall. So they've got to eat while they're migrating, they need energy to fly. So they've got to eat grain and weed seeds and things like that. But a feather is about 85% protein. So those mallards to grow the green head and the females to get into that alternate plumage in the fall, they're gorging on inverts. I mean, not for long periods, but they're eating a lot of inverts to get that protein. Late winter, how many times have you guys seen this? You shoot a hen mallard late winter or see hen mallards late winter. They Some of them almost look like model ducks. They're dark. Mm -hmm. They're going through that pre-basic molt. So again, in late winter, they're gorging the females. You'll see the males with their head up, you know, and the females just gorging on insects and invertebrates to get that protein and that calcium to get ready for pre-breeding. And that nobody knows the real story on the pre-basic plumage. It must have some insulating capacities or benefits once she gets back to the prairies. Um, but they go through that real heavy, dark molt late in the winter. So that's, that's kind of bug driven or plants with, you know, high, high amounts of protein. So, Depending on where they're at in their biological part of the year, it depends. Um, but, you know, when it's cold, I mean, we, we kind of laugh. You're not going to carry wintering duck populations on insects because there's just not enough calories, right? It's like big boy needs to eat, right? You're not going to sustain an offensive line on, on salad. I mean, they need to eat some of it, but they got to eat, right? So ducks are a lot the same way, especially big birds like mallards that need a lot of calories, so, so the invertebrates are, those amino acids are important in their diet for various nutritional reasons, but the big boys got to eat, you know, so the grain and the weed seeds and things like that are really important. Yeah. Can you see the invertebrates with your naked eye? 
Oh yeah, when you guys are out in the marsh, just like you know, spiders running across the top of yeah. So I see that they look like maybe like larvae for a mosquito, and they're just kind of well. Those are those are like midge coronamids. So you guys ever see the big blooms? Like looks like clouds, like twisty clouds. You're Mm -hmm. like, oh look at all those mosquitoes. Those are actually midges. Probably the greatest midge um, clouds I've ever seen were in the Sacramento Valley of California. Just amazing that Mediterranean climate, real mild climate. But those midges, so when they're those worms, those coronamid worms, um, I know we're not talking about divers, but like scop and some of the diving ducks, man, they'll just nail those things. Mm. So yeah, so they'll so, so dabbling ducks invertebr- eat is, a lot of that. Yeah, is there things that a guy can do to try to have invertebrates? Well, typically um, natural well and environments, and 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 people ask me like, what's your favorite ag food for ducks? I'm like, well. You know, in the short term weekend hunt, give me some flooded corn, like flooded up to my knees maybe, and probably be pretty good. But long term, I would say rice fields. And the reason I say rice fields is because they're um, they're just such an important aquatic habitat, and their rice is a grass. And so typically grasslands, whether they're wet or dry, have a lot of either like upland arthropods, you know, invertebrate insects or wet areas like <clears throat> more soil impoundments, wet prairies, things like that. There's lots of different kind of invertebrates. So, so rice is because it's a grass, it's like the closest thing. It's close as hot food. We have to like more soil, if you will, if you let your imagination go. So rice is a really, really important, um, habitat, agricultural habitat on the landscape. And, um, and not to say the other crops aren't important. They are, but so basically those natural wetland habitats. And then like I always tell my students, I'm like, what really, what is the, what's really productive about bottom on hardwood forest? What happens in the fall? And it takes them a minute, but like they drop their leaves. I'm like, yep. Walk through the woods late in the winter after they've been flooded, you know, all winter long. What do you see? Like, oh, a bunch of black mucky stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's all. And that's all the work of water and, um, um, all kind of chemical processes, basically lack of oxygen because they've been under the water. And those invertebrates feed, we call it like the bottom up drivers, you know? And so, so like your woods, and that's why I tell landowners at the end of duck season, don't pull your boards right away. Pull your boards down to, you know, two to to 12 inches of water. So those birds can get in there. And a lot of that leaf litter, you'll see a lot of snails. Mm. And those mallard hens will get in there late winter and wood ducks and they'll just gorge on those snails, you know. And and the reason that all happens is all that detritus, you know, the leaf litter, all that mass under the water. It's just kind of decomposing. And so that's what builds, you know, like soil and it basically produces life, you know, from the bottom up, literally. So so there can be a lot of bugs in in bottom and hardwoods, but typically these grassy, moist soil type wetlands where you have all this diverse grasses, sedges, stuff like that, you get a smorgasbord of of bugs. So what are what are some of your favorite uh moist soil plant species for dabblers? <sighs> I like I always like getting an argument with, with Dr. Kaminsky. I was, I was gonna say because I, I had him for summer camp. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. he was like, you know, smart weed isn't as important as they've said it. Well, right for no, years, and 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 from a truly from a nutritional standpoint, he's right. You know, I would barnyard grass is pretty hard to beat. You know, wild millet. Um, but I grew up again in kind of north central Missouri, hunting like the Grand River bottoms and that. And for whatever reason, that part of the world just does naturally just cranks out this annual smartweed. 
you got to be careful. I don't like the perennial smartweed at all. And that grows a lot down here in real wet areas. But a little bit higher parts of the wetland that dry out earlier in spring. Um, man, I've I've pounded annual smart weed fields day after day and couldn't shoot the ducks out of them, you know. Does it have a pink, little pink? pink yeah, big pink flower. There's Pennsylvanicum, Lepathifolium. There's several different types. And then the the one that grows in the real wetter is we call it's called Polygonum hydropeperoides, but it's marsh smartweed. But it's, the seeds real hard. They're and, white, aren't they? Yeah, more of a white flower. And they can really take over and outcompete a lot of stuff. Yeah. And usually that's kind of a signature that you're a little too wet. You know, you may want to dry out. and But yeah, those. So, and, and like Jody Pagan. Jody Jody gets my vibe at Five Oaks. You guys know Jody. He's like, yeah, Davis. He goes, man, he goes, those green heads don't even leave that smartweed. They got a huge like smartweed millet wetland behind the lodge out there that they don't hunt. He goes, Davis, he goes, but you can walk across their back and they never get out of there. I mean, they just, so I think it's, it's not just the seed, but if you think about a lot of these wetland plants also are good cover crops and depending on their height and and water depths and things like that. But smartweed, I kind of joke, it's like a herbaceous forest. You know, you don't think there's birds in there till you start walking towards it. And it's like, holy cow, the thing's just full of ducks, you know. And it may help with, like you were saying, with like thermal regulation. And stuff. It's, right. it's yep. also housing a bunch yep. of invertebrates. And there's a bunch of invertebrates. The, the leaves on those are kind of desiccate, which means the bugs, they, they can start on them and kind of wear them out and wear them down and all that stuff. Just all this life going on in there. And then and then that's food for the birds, you know. So. So like teal, you know, they get harassed a lot by marsh hawks, northern harriers. So they'll get in that um, as cover, you know, and and it it cuts the wind down. So so a lot of these, a lot of these, it's like I tell my students, it's migration and winter uh, waterfowl management. It's all about the food, but it's not all about the food. Or I should say, it's not all about the food, but it's all about it. however you want to phrase that. But food is really really important. But these wetland plant communities give you so many other things. It could be, you know, breaking the wind, um, thermal regulation, hiding, you know, teal hiding from northern harrier, stuff like that, or owls or whatever. So, yeah. And that's that's similar to like when somebody calls me, uh, it's just kind of an analogy, but, you know, they they talk about persimmons being uh, dioecious. And, uh, you know, used to we would say just kill most of the male trees once they – yeah. show their sex and now uh we just like to leave them there because they attract so many insects yeah which which birds use so yeah. Yeah. you know it's not always uh, the plant species it's not all about the food it's yeah. what else yeah. they provide like yeah. cover or attracting and, and, insects things like and thinking that. about the most talking about more soil again too not all of them so the energy value in a lot of those is pretty high they're all pretty good from an energetic standpoint but you're not going to carry tons of mallards forever on plants like um, panagrass or sprangletop because the seeds are so small, right? So larger seeds like millet, you know, smart weeds, those that may have, they're a little bit bigger, a little bit more energy. Um, the lamellae and the mallards bill is a little further space. So birds like little birds like teal, they're really good at those small seeds, you know. And that's another thing I'll say about habitat. Um, and green wings are real sensitive, at least in my opinion. You can have areas that are just just awesome moist soil. But if your water is up to your thigh or even your knees, 
Um, sometimes you're not going to see many, you know, I love to hunt green wings. I love to grill green wing teal to tailgates. I mean, everybody's like, doc, these are good. What are these? I'm like green wing teal, you know, they eat seeds. They taste great. Um, but you start, you can have awesome habitat, awesome, uh, vegetation, but if your water levels are too high and I've seen this in more places than one, you know, and then the water goes down about the top of your knee boot, you know, shin deep, it's like, Ooh, all of a sudden there's teal or even ankle deep water. Um, there's some duck clubs in the Mississippi Delta, I won't mention, and they got into WRP and it was designed well. And they have these fields that are just prolific, like panic grass fields and sprinkle top. And water's like this. And man, it's just Six, eight whoo, inches. teal, just, whoo, you know. And they purposely do that. They know they're not going to go shoot a living of mallards in there. They're going to go shoot teal. And hey, you know, but if you raise that water another four or five inches, they're probably not to say they won't be there, but, but birds like teal, you know, you, so that's the other thing I impress on landowners is besides the quality plants in your environment, make sure your water levels are, you know, I mean, we've all hunted waist deep water and shot mallards in the woods. I mean, I realize that, but when those birds are trying to feed on those small seeds, you really want to give them an opportunity to, to get at it. So, so that makes sense. When you're talking about dabbling ducks, then you're, you're looking at the size of that duck. And, and That's right. basically that duck, when he tips up to feed, his butt's staying up above the water level. Yep. And it's that only as far down as his neck will stretch. Is, That's right. And so for mallards, we say the golden rule is like 18 inches. That's, you know, when the bird's up in the air. And you, if you get out and really watch birds, you know, if you – um, if you see them really scramble, like really kicking their feet, you know, what that's telling me is like, they're trying to really reach, but it's just a little too deep, you know? So bringing it down just a couple of few inches, a lot of times you'll see them and they're not scrambling as much. It's like they can stay, you know, they can reach it. And, and to put all this in numbers, um, the great Dr. Heath Hagee, who's, uh, was one of Kaminsky's PhD students, he did some experiments with with feeding waterfowl over a cold water refuge, places that weren't being hunted. And they, they kept adding millet and did a bunch of cool stuff to see when birds would kind of give up on foraging. But the bottom line is after three winter seasons and, and Heath watching literally thousands of ducks, not just mallards, I think the number is 90% of all those birds that he watched fed in six inches of water or less. Hmm. And you can do that over there. You know, refuges have an easier – or let's just say anybody that where the hunting pressure is not as much of a focal point or people tend to walk out to hunt, not have, not have a boat. Um, you can generally keep the water level shallower, you know, and that's just so advantageous to small birds like teal pintails. I mean, there's a, a plant that basically drives pintail existence in California, swamp Timothy. Those guys will, they'll just put a ring of water on that swamp Timothy and those ducks will just walk that water line just, you know. No, so what is that? It's a little bitty tiny grass with these seeds that you almost have to see under a microscope and they just, it'll be a carpet of it. We have stuff here called um, teal grass, you know, like love grass. It grows kind of low. You may have seen that, real small seeds. But it's just one of those annual seed, high seed producers, tiny, tiny seed. But boy, they love them and they can get them. The lamelles, you know, close enough in their bill they can just the water goes out and they so they can make a living on they can't live all winter on those but it's really an important you know food item for you know, green wing teal pintails but it's it's fascinating you know people think ducks need a lot of water but really they'll they, if they're not being disturbed um 
they'll walk on dry ground. You know, they'll be sitting up on logs. I mean, ducks, when they're not disturbed, they spend half the day out of water. You know, they're sitting on rice levees or in logs in the woods, you know, all kind of stuff. But typically we are not able to see that because we're running around and disturbing them. The Furminator is the industry's most versatile piece of food plot equipment, allowing plotters to do every step of the process, working the soil, adding seed and soil supplements, and compacting. From start to finish, with a single implement, it's hassle-free by design. Set it for the seed size and simply drive the tractor, and the Furminator does the rest. Check it out at theferminator.com. You're talking about disturbing them, and it made me think about, I wanted to ask you about what, what you've thought about drones. And people using drones to maybe I don't scout, know, scout or, or, or instead of that human intrusion of going into a to an area, it, you, it's a big question, and there's yeah. a lot of different you know angles on it. But yeah, just your kind of thoughts off the top. Yeah, so I don't have a lot of experience with them right now. I know Kevin Ringelman and one of his students at LSU are working on. Um, counting some of those some of the mallards in the woods different woods with drones and and he could I wish he was here to tell you that typically with a lot of wildlife depending on what they are it's like a height certain height you know if you're below that they get spooked um if you're above that you know they'll they'll be pretty good with it so it's kind of a trade off between um you know how precise do we need to identify that species so how low do we need to go and does it work so honestly um i think in some places I've heard people tell me, you know, they don't flush and other, other times they do, but you don't really know how high exactly you are, but height definitely will influence, you know, some critters can handle it better than others, you know, but I don't, I haven't used them a lot. So, um, some of the duck hunters that do could probably give you a much better answer. So what, uh, what would be your thought? You know, there a lot of our listeners have been doing this kind of stuff for years and, uh, we're almost talking under their, Heads, but a lot of us, uh, including myself, don't know a whole lot about waterfowl management. Uh, how would somebody just say they, you know, own fifty or sixty acres and don't have a, a waterfowl spot on their property? How how would somebody get started? Um, and then, are there any kind of like regulations as far as you know, plugging up a ditch or or something like that? No, that's a good question. And I think this year everybody's looking for that silver lining, you know, it's like how, you know, typically like, um, we call them camelbacks or Chris of fully pumps, you know, that go over a levee and hook onto a PTO of a tractor and they put them in, in a river or some water body and pump water. Even a lot of those places this year are challenged, you know? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, typically you, you know, it depends on, on the water course, you know, typically the larger the water courses and the more, you know, like in the agricultural environment where there's water going from farmer X, Y, and Z, you got to be careful about who, you know, where you're moving water, the certain volumes of water and what time of year and things like that. Um, but, but yeah, so you can do, you can do simple things like, you know, sandbag an area and keep water from running out, you know, and there's, there's various kinds of water water control structures. Probably the more popular ones are what we call them stop log structures. And they have what we call like a riser on them. And you basically put these boards down in front of a pipe or um, water comes in and it goes, flows underneath a levee and goes into the wetland of, you know, your desired choice. 
probably one of the least expensive ways to do to to move water to create duck habitat is um, gravity feed. So areas that are if you got an area with water like a reservoir and you have potential duck habitat below that, you can move water from up here to down here. That's really cheap. You don't need diesel pumps. You don't need mm-hmm. wells. Of course, you need water up in that in that um, reservoir to do that. But then, and then you need a conveyance system. You know, some sort of pipe. It may be a screw gate where you turn mm-hmm. the handle. You know, and the water comes up and goes out. And, and that then, uh, that would be really cool. Uh, you know, a lot of us like to catch big bass, and yep. you uh, you do a winter drawdown oftentimes when you're That's you right. know trying to get the big bass to eat all the little brim. Yep. Uh, and so you could kill two birds with one stone. You yep. could have a little bitty impoundment below your pond dam. Yep. And uh, yeah. And so, and, and people should realize too, there's the NRCS provides a lot of great services. There's an R- NRCS biologist in every County. So if you think you have, you know, a potential wetland uh, fish and wildlife service also has, has what they call partners for fish and wildlife programs. And they'll come in and, um, NRCS actually has engineers. They'll come in and they'll shoot like elevations on your place. Even if it's, it can be really small. I don't know if they have like a minimum acres, but they'll do small and big places. Um, so they'll come in and you'll, you might have a soil scientist. They may take some soil cores to say, Hey, this is, this will hold water or it won't. Um, and then they may even shoot elevations for you and then design like a small levee or even install a water control structure. So, there are some opportunities with with some of the agencies and for some of the smaller landowners that may not have as many resources, you know, like start with the NRCS, just asking those questions could be really could be real helpful. Okay. Yeah. And I, I guess you could ask your your you know, your state person as well. <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah. Or uh, maybe call your conservation organization yep. like DU yep. or Delta Waterfowl. They may have somebody that Yeah, and when I I don't I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what the private lands program is for DU. But when I worked for them in the mid 2000s, we had what we call partners for wildlife. And man, we would give high end water control structures to landowners. You know, part of it was to save, you know, like there were 319 grants that was um, for highly imperiled streams like soil erosion. So we would give them that for, you know, to, to kind of curtail soil erosion. But at the same time, it provided, you could provide really good duck habitat. So I don't think they give pipes anymore, but that was a real successful program. But but NRCS, there's a lot of conservation programs, CP programs, conservation program, and there's various numbers associated with them based on what they'll do. Um, but a lot of smaller landowners may be able to find some assistance from that. Yeah, that's where I would start. NRCS, um, state or federal biologist and or uh, – Ducks Unlimited. I mean, it would be so fun to have a little hole on your place, uh, not to mention uh, the recreational value yep. is going to skyrocket if you've got right. a little waterfowl spot. Yep. You know, oh, you got yeah. deer, you got turkey. Yep. Oh, we got ducks too. Yep. You know? This is duck land by the square foot. Yeah. Oh, not the <laughs> this is an interesting year. And I have another, it's kind of another Davis theory. And my, my friends are probably theory. telling me I'm crazy, but um, what it, it can be duck hunting can go south, no no pun intended. <laughs> it, can, it can go bad, in my opinion, when you're when you've got like landscape water and it's warm. I don't know if you guys remember. God, time flies now. 
four or five winters ago, it was warm and we had water from one place. It was was just water. You could boat almost anywhere. And I got invited over to Arkansas and Bayou LaGrue, you know, one of the historic Bayou LaGrue Mallard uh, woods over there. And the guys that had me were great people. They just kept apologizing to me. I'm like, don't apologize. I understand. I mean, it's like 60 degrees, um, water everywhere. You see a pair of mallards here, a pair of mallards there. And he's just like, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, look, and nothing any of us can do about that. You know, for the ducks, it's wonderful. They're not stressed from the cold. There's water everywhere. It's wonderful for them. For us, it's horrible. Go to this year. It's so dry. You know, and automatically you're like, man, if I got habitat, we're going to smoke them, right? We're going to get them. And I've already talked to a, some managers of a couple of prominent duck clubs. I won't mention their name. Great folks, you know, all that, just just to kind of maintain their privacy. I'm like, you must just be stacked. Like, well, we got huntable numbers, but it's not like what you would think. And their habitat is five-star. I mean, hmm. it's, you know, it's amazing. And, and yet – they're like, yeah, we're not as loaded as you might think, you know? And so I think, I think there's like this water interface. And now with this 20 years of aerial survey, we can do a podcast, hopefully this summer, this stuff ought to be done. But I think there's like a happy medium, like where if, if it's too wet, we're done. You might as well just watch football and hang out. Right. And if it's too dry, a lot of people are limited unless you have a place to go. Right. But in terms of the ducks, I think there's, there's some threshold somewhere where even if you have like wanting to flood the back 40 or, or whatever, it's not even in a dry year. I don't know if it's going to guarantee you a lot of birds because when you have so many small patches of water out there, it just can't somewhere at some point it can't, it can only sustain so many birds. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's like, if it's so dry, yeah, you're going to have patches of rich habitat and probably some birds, but, at a greater landscape level, and especially where you have birds moving around looking for food and going back and forth, and you know what ducks do, um, that can't happen, right? Because there's just not the resources. So, so really, wet years I think for duck hunters are not good, and um, years like this, um, some people are going to have spectacular years this year, but a lot of people are going to be like, ah, you know, it's just too dry, right? And even where there is water you may not have the number of birds there that you might if there was like maybe another 30% water in the landscape, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cause it just, you get, you try to get so many birds packed into one place. They just can't sustain for very long. You know, they just got to move and go find other stuff. So this is a really weird year. I mean, it's very dry and very restricted. I'm Um, I'm interested to see how the, the drought may affect next year. Yeah. We were talking about that last trees dying or so area stuff growing in areas where it hadn't grown in years, you know, that kind of thing. It's a great question. A great observation. I have two young ladies, two of my master's students, and we're doing a big like WRE evaluation. Um, NRCS provided us some funding and it's not just us where there's a study, similar study in South Dakota, Missouri, Mississippi, and then East Texas and North Louisiana. And, I've been out in the field a lot with them this summer and fall and man, it's just so dry. And I've told them this is a duck hunter's worst nightmare, but I said, ecologically for the trees, this is the very, this is the cream of the crop. Mm. Their feet are dry. They're not being flooded. You know, people don't realize how much pressure our, our hardwood forest are, are in. 
Especially those small lake and reds. I think I'm exactly. Uh, water oak, willow oak, not all oak, um, cherry barks, which we don't have a lot of. But And then where I'm from, the not all oak is basically called the pin oak. But ecologically, they're basically the same tree. But but just, I, I think I'm fair to say this, like Arkansas Game and Fish, for example, they're investing like $100 million in reviving the bottom and hardwood forest because they've just been flooded for so long. So they convert to overcup. Go to overcup. Yep. So many times been with so many landowners like, man, we've been shooting ducks here since the thirties, you know, and now they don't come in here and you're walking around and you see these like mini baseballs floating around on the water. And I'm like, you know, look at your woods, you know? And, and that's what I tell people is like, if you got a, if you got a smart weed millet field and you go diss that thing down, it looks completely different. Right. But woods, as long as the trees are still standing, Unless you're a forester, they don't look any different, right? right? But all through the decades, the, the species composition has shifted to more overcup in a lot of places. So people just haven't realized that, and they're get they've gotten more educated. But there's a huge push, especially in Arkansas, to really um, restore the hydrology. We can kill trees by flooding them too early for too long, and we can kill them by leaving the water on too long in, in the spring. And so they're they're investing literally hundreds of hundred million dollars, tens and tens of millions of dollars. Biomedia is getting a major facelift. So in a year like this, it's really frustrating to the, the, the tree lovers, right? The duck hunters, the, the everybody wants to hunt in the woods. Um, but for the trees, for the long-term health of the trees, this is a really, really good thing. And I use the same analogy in the prairies. You know, those prairie wetlands need to dry out. It's just part mm-hmm. of their natural ecological process the soils need to dry out it's like things just need to like dry out recycle nutrients need to recycle it's like they need to a wetland needs to breathe right but as duck hunters were like we want everything to be flooded max every year you know all the wetlands should be shock full of water and blah 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 and so that you know water produces ducks yes but for the long-term health of a lot of these ecosystems they've got a cycle you know so so in a year like this, it's really, really frustrating for us as duck hunters. But in terms of tree health, it's the best thing that could happen. You know, so that, that's really interesting to think yeah. about. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. That cycles mm. and it, yeah, we all were selfish. We, you know, we're wanting everything to be perfect, so yeah. we kill our limited ducks. And I had the privilege of going to to Brandywine Island this this summer to look at that, and and the caretakers like. I'm going to take you down in this slough, this button bush break, man. It's never, never not had water. And he said, not only is it dry this year, he goes, I think I can drive across it. We were down in, in anybody that's seen Brandywine, there's a lot of ridge and swell, a lot of, a lot of topography. And there were places we'd be going downhill and it's just cypress knees and, and button bush. And, you know, Red Root Flat says, ain't, ain't a puddle of water for, until the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And not only was it not flooded, he was driving like right across, right through this thing. You know, he's like, I've never, I've never seen this, <laughs> hmm. you know? So it's a really extraordinarily dry year. And so, but for the resource, um, I know duck hunters hate me saying that, but for the resource, it's really wonderful for yeah. us as hunters. It's really disappointing. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So, so just double down next year. That's right. <laughs> These dabbling ducks. Have you got a couple that's come to mind as your favorite? That was I actually gave my students that last week on uh, three point extra credit question on the final exam. <laughs> yeah. What's Doc's favorite waterfowl species? And 
there was no wrong answer, but some of them like Mallard Wood Duck with question marks, like, oh, I can't remember. I'm like, <laughs> it's all good. So I tell them it depends on what what mood I'm in, I guess, you know. But I don't know. I you know, the elegance of northern pintails. I mean, mm, everybody loves to watch them. pintails just fly and, and the courtship flights to me. I mean, I, I'll sit there and watch them like I don't even want to shoot at them, you know, they're just so pretty to watch and they're so good to eat. Green wings from a from a table fair, you know, little no seed eaters, doubt. you know. Boom, boom on the grill. Five minutes, you're done. Medium rare, you know. But all of them, mallards, you know, wood ducks. I mean, wood ducks are technically a tree duck, but we I call them dabblers. But um, yeah, I I'm not a trophy hunter. You know, I don't I don't have any mounts in my house. I'm not like a mount guy, so to speak. I love to hunt them and cook them for people. You know, I mean, I cook a lot of white fronts. Not a duck, of course, but uh, man, oh man, they're fun to hunt and they're so good to eat. They're just hmm. fabulous. Those curly tails on the back end of a mallard. Yeah. Usually there's two or three. Yeah. Do they serve any purpose or just make well, them look handsome? So, yeah. And there's some truth to that. And there's, we could probably do a whole session on, there's there's something called a carotenoid. And carotenoids are like signals of our health, for example. And so plumages in ducks are you know, tip like mallards, they pair like most of the mallards right now are paired. You know, there's not a cardinal or a robin or a blue jay out there that's paired. It won't be until March, April, or May, right? But most of the mallards right now that we see around here, actually, they may be, still be in flocks, but they're paired. So, did you know that, Lanny? Uh, uh-uh. uh I didn't. I've- totally different. So, pintails aren't quite as paired. Blue wings wait until late in the winter. They're not paired yet, but mallards, a lot of them are paired. So, so a lot of those plumage characteristics. So, based on what a mallard can eat. So the, the hen is sizing up the male, right? And and in wild duck populations, it's not this hard and fast and this linear, but typically there's about 51% males to 49% females, roughly, give and take. Um, and so what that means is there's a few more males in the population than there are females. So if you're a male and you're going to pair, a female is going to select you, you're going to want to grow that gaudy plumage, right? You want to get that green head as fast as you can. You want to be able to grow really colorful speculums. And so a lot of the diet, your diet will reflect a lot, like how fast you can complete the molt process. And then um, if if you're, you know, you're good at exploiting different environments and you're big and you're, you got showy feathers, you got a great bright green head, you got those curly cues, those were all, what we call like secondary sex characteristics that the females looking at the male going, Oh, he works, he doesn't, you know, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, all those little plumage details, a lot of that is, is food driven, but it's also, it plays into the life history and it factors into when they do courtship and when they pair and maintain pair bonds and all that. And it's kind of like, you know, this time of year, they feed a lot on the same things kind of at the same rate, if you will. But as winter goes to spring, you'll see a lot more vigilance in the male mallards. You know, the hen will have her head under the water. I mean, he has to eat, of course. But that hen, man, she's just gorging. You know, just got her head under the water and he's like this, watching over. So that's one of the the adaptive survival mechanisms of a lot of um, dabbling ducks is they pair so early in the year, especially mallards, you know. So a lot of people are like, how come we can't hunt late? It's getting warmer. We should hunt in February. And I'm like, have you ever, if you really watch ducks when you're hunting in late January, 
it's over, right? I mean, we may have a big cold push and we get some new birds, but man, they're tired. You know, you see a pair here and a pair there. I mean, even when I hunt late in the year, I may just have one mallard hen on a jerk string. It might be all I use, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, just, I'm not throwing out 75 decoys because biologically they've changed, you know, they're just off doing their own thing. They're in small groups, gradually in pairs, things like that. So kind of a long response to your question, but, but all those plumage characteristics. And that's the other thing too, when you're out hunting this year, so oftentimes people that haven't watched ducks all like pintails or gadwall, they do a lot of aerial courtship. So I don't know how many times I've hunted and you'll see a pintail courtship flight. Like, oh, here comes a flock of sprig, get ready. I'm like, no, yeah, that's a flock of sprig, but that's like eight drakes and one female and, and those guys are courting her, you know? So a lot of those birds are showing off their courtship ability in the fall. Um, pintails, widgeon, you'll see a lot of those. Mallards do it, gadwall do it, not to the extent that pintail and widgeon do. But what those males are doing is they're flashing their speculums, they're flying, they're showing her that, you know, they're adroit at flying. They got stamina, you know, and that's part of their life history. Like pintails, for example, are just really nomadic, you know, and they they have to fly a long way. And so that female is kind of checking him out. So all those plumage, I'm looking at the sprig on your wall, you know, the long tail. I mean, those act as like rudders, all these little bitty tiny things, um, the color of their head and bill. So a lot of that reflects like their age. It might reflect their nutrition, you know, how a female duck sizes up a male duck. I don't really know, but (laughs) typically those that are in better condition, maybe older, we know older birds typically pair first, things like that. So yeah, kind of a long answer. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. (laughs) It it really is. So goodness, this has been fascinating. No doubt about it. I'm just sitting here soaking it in. Yeah. Lanny, have you got a question? Any questions or Mike, either one of y'all that we hadn't covered? You know, I was going to ask, me and Dudley have been discussing a lot, the the drying out and how it would affect, you know, hoping to have a positive effect. So that's what I was going to talk about, but it sounds like it's pretty optimistic. Definitely on the trees, you know, um, moist soil, you know, moist soil impoundments are different because you're dealing with a lot of annual plants. Mm -hmm. And I'm not aware of any information that like, hey, if we, if we keep flooding and drawing down this field on these dates the same way every year for like 50 years, what does it do to the seed back of that yeah, plant? Yeah, the same I don't know of any, I'm not aware of that information, not to say that we couldn't do it, but the trees are just different because they're so long lived, right? Mm-hmm. They're just so established. And what people don't realize about the woods too, is that they're not, you know, you look across the flooded woods, you think, oh, it's just this flat piece of ground with a bunch of trees. And actually, bottom and hardwoods are not a lot different than like natural wetlands. There may not be as much topography in places, but we have things called like flats and ridges and swales, right? Mm -hmm. Even in those woods. And so historically, before we messed up hydrology, um, that's why the cherry barks, why they were some of the first trees to be cut, right? Because they're on the higher and drier. They're in a bottomland, but they're up on the more accessible sort of higher and drier ridges, right? Whereas like nuttalls and water oaks may be in a little bit lower elevation, but not nearly as low as um, uh, cypress and gum trees, right? They're they're living in the water near it. So even in the forest, you have a lot of this variability in topography, and that's what has created all these different tree species. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like herbaceous plants in a wetland, just a couple of inches of elevation, you might have 
annual smart weed, or you might have, you know, red roof, flat sedge, whatever it might be. So the annual things are, we, you can, you can kind of abuse them and play with them a lot more. Trees are typically more long lived, obviously more long lived, longer established. And, and it's not like we renew those every year. We're not disking the soil every year and like bringing things back to life. Um, so water really, really matters, you know, so too much, too early, too much, too late. That really matters, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and it, and we really have just started to realize in the last 20 years, yeah. you know, the first green tree reservoir was basically Stuttgart in the 1930s, you know, and then when everybody figured out, oh my God, look at these ducks going in these woods, you know, and it's like, Hey, we put levees around these things. Yeah. We, we got duck holes for days, you know? And it, it, you know, nobody knew the science then. It's just taking a long time, you know. So it's mm-hmm. nobody's fault. It's just so. It, but we, we do know enough now to to be able to tell people, don't flood your woods. You know, wait, flood the moist soil early, move water in your woods late. You know what a lot of growers deal with though is uh, a lot of them want to get like the tail water when it comes off the rice fields because yeah. in a dry year like this, had many landowners for years. Man, if I don't get that that tail water, we may not have water. I'm like, I understand that, but, you know, I might get fired. I'm not going to have water in the woods on opening day, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I understand all that. I mean, that's, and it's even worse on public lands. How come my hole's not flooded, you know? Mm-hmm. So in a year like this, it's really, really difficult because one, the water's just not there. Um, and, and, and yeah, and it's a good year for the trees. Bad for us, great for the trees. Yeah. So. Well, the mallard may be the most studied bird in the world. It's literally, literally probably the most well-known bird on the on the planet, literally. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yep. Didn't realize and that. we can do a lot of stuff with them, you know, analytically because you can, so many of them have been marked, you know, and people like to shoot them and you can band them. And we've marked a lot of them on the breeding grounds, you know, through the decades. So there's a lot of, a lot of information, you know, we don't, don't nearly know near as much about the Hooter Merganser, but People aren't throwing millions of dollars in. <laughs> you know, God loves the Hooter Merganser. Yeah, but, you know. yeah. Sometimes he's the only one that shows yeah. up. They're, they're, Lanny, a, they're Lanny. a fascinating duck, but yeah. they're not going to, yeah. Lanny's bad about shooting one of those. <laughs> That's neat. I love them. They're neat birds. But, yeah. So, uh, Doc, did you bring a trivia question to try to stump us, or is that the one you threw out a moment That's ago? That's a whole paper over there. He's going to no, stump yeah, us. I'm not going to. Yeah. So <laughs> hang on before you go down the road. We, we, uh, it seems like like we used to ask our guests. The worm questions. has turned they, to use Mister Fox term, and nobody's been able to stop us. I'm not bragging. Have we lost one yet? No, we've gotten them all right. Well, don't you know? I'm not jinxing us. Yeah, oh yeah, I think you just did, Richie. Who is uh, that? Kind of tee us up on this trivia thing. I like that. Today's trivia is brought to us by Sheffield Financial because your finances are not trivial. They are not trivial. <laughs> Okay, Rich. <laughs> we're trying to do what we can. I think you might need to go back to the drawing board on that one. I Wait, don't know. I can't watch you, it. you don't like that, bud? No, I don't I like it. We'll need uh, to ask Sheffield what d- they think. About <laughs> it. So, you know, they've got 14,000 offices, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out. If you need to finance something, they're whatever you need. They, they're good. A- to yeah, ATV, UTVs, boats, <laughs> tractors. You know, LS tractors. LS tractors. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, getting pl- your duck mounted. My gracious, have you have you, uh, a, the, a duck mount? <laughs> they're expensive. No, that's I'm about four hundred dollars right yeah, there. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. So uh, playing today for Nashville Bulldog, a prize a pair of Duke 
dog proof traps. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. I love those dogs. Yeah. I'd like, I need, so I brought some back to the office and somebody has helped themselves to them. Oh, I think I, I think I know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I need them. I got a bunch of raccoons right yeah. now. Well, a guy came by today and showed me a picture of four raccoons that he caught last night that works here. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. You know him. I'll introduce you. Uh, probably wear uh, my dog proof. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Here we Doc, go. Doc, now you can try to stump us. So we, you know, it's one of the interesting things about hunting regulations, and, and I think hunters sometimes get frustrated because the feds, tell, you know, for the last 20, 25 years now with adaptive harvest management, they're like, hey, you can shoot. We got plenty of ducks. You can shoot six a day for 60 days, right? And, and in the early 2000s, it got dry again. Uh, it, was, it was pretty dry. And there was a lot of mumbling coming off the 90s when hunting was really, really good, right? It was really wet in the 90s and it got dry. But instead of regulations going back down to like three or four ducks like they would have historically before the adaptive harvest management, um, they stayed at six. So people were, were grumbling like, oh, you're telling us all these birds are out here, but yet we're not you know, shooting as many. And so you can legally shoot, you know, a lot of people, lay people ask me this, like, how can you study these things and... And yet you, you want to go out and shoot six of them a day, aren't you dent, denting populations? I'm like, well, hunting really doesn't have a lot to do with it. And I'm like, matter of fact, do you know what the average harvest per man per day in general of, of ducks is? Hmm. And I got, that's, that's, that's one question, but I got to follow up to that one. But <laughs> you guys probably know this. I don't know. I think we might have talked about this at one point. It's much lower than six. So, yeah. So, nah. so these are, is this the, like the hip thing that I fill out every year and <laughs> yeah. send back in? Well, and that- that's kind of a categorization of how many birds you shoot. Um, yeah, all this kind of feeds into this. So yeah. this is across the whole country, average harvest per hunter per day. Yeah, and it's – I don't know if it fits all flyways. You know, California can shoot seven birds right. a day and for 90 days or whatever, 100 days, but – but generally, just yeah, I'll give you a number. But what do, what what do you, you think, think, Mike? I'm gonna go with two. I'm going with one and a half. <laughs> How much are we betting? <laughs> okay, maybe half. Yeah. No, 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 no. You're, you're you're like red. You got smoke that was, that coming out of your ears. Oh, so yeah. hot, man. Must be close. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I yeah. really yeah. don't know. I would have thought it would have been a little higher than that. No, you're right. It. it Overall, it's about it's like one point two or one point four something something yeah. in there. It's it's I hovering around one one plus some something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course That's that surprising. can that can vary that varies by. So we close enough that we can say we got it right. Oh yeah! All right. Still undefeated. So if you asked me how many does Dudley add, zero average, I, I would have said that one point two. You know, the rest of us, I think we're like I'm always oh, checking. Like, no, I can tell you over the past few years, I'm definitely trending down. He's he's still trying to kill his first one. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Dudley's got a lot of challenges. Yes. Yeah. Okay, bless, bless his heart. So the other way to look at these things is, and when you look at the, the harvest regs, they give you all kind of stuff, like how many mallards were killed in every state and Canada, all that kind of stuff. Another statistic people like to know is what is the seasonal duck bag per hunter? So huh. how many ducks do you shoot in a given year on average for the state of Mississippi? What do you think that is for the state of Mississippi? So and you're that, not asking what the bag limit is or what the possession limit no, is. No, what's the average bag that you killed Throughout the year. Yep. Whew. Give me a range. 
like per hunter per year in Mississippi. In the how range, many how many days? When, I mean, how, what kind of? I mean, we talking about a hardcore hunter? No, I mean, just on average, just every average. average. I'm gonna say yeah. 22 to 30. Ooh. Oh man, that's high. Ooh. I think that's high. I'm on back. You go next. Uh, I'm gonna say greater than 15 and less than 20. Man, that's right where I was gonna guess. I was gonna. I'm just gonna throw a number out there. I was gonna say uh, 16. Man, you guys are smart. You don't need me. Shoot. You need to come lecture in my class. <laughs> so from 1999 to 2000, the average was 21.3. And from 2016 to 2020, it was 15.1. So <laughs> so is that you guys so are close. Could yeah. you take that data and say the average hunter hunts 15, 16 days a season out of 60? I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know how many. I can find average hunting days. I think in some data, it'd be interesting. Yeah, state. I mean, it, it would be based on sixty days, but how how that's divided up based on the number of days hunted. I can't mm. remember how that if they did that or it's just based on the sixty days. So the other point I wanted to make is that it's not like a linear decline, um, but it's definitely in the late nineties. It was as high as it was, and then in the early two thousands, um. Oh, the average is about 18. So from 2016 to 20, it's about 15. But in the early 2000s, when it got dry, it was around 15 to 17, somewhere in there. So it's not like it, it's not like we've had this linear decline. It's just getting worse. But the birds are showing up later. That might be mm -hmm. one more point I want to make is that um, looking at Mississippi harvest or aerial surveys, for example, Boy, there's this many ducks in November, there's this many in December, and in January, we're like this. Mm -hmm. January. So birds are coming later. So there's, and we're working on these survey data now. So a lot of people are like, oh, the ducks aren't here anymore. There's a massive decline. And so far, um, it's probably true. There's probably a bit of a decline for mallards, but some of the other ones like Shoveler and Gadwall, based on the aerial surveys, they've actually increased a little bit, believe hmm. it or not. What's going on though is that more birds are coming later. Yeah. So early in the year, um, and, it, and again, it kind of goes back to the weather events and things like that. So yeah, makes sense. You know, you guys have some challenges to analyze those numbers because I would think in the last couple of years, the COVID it brought a lot of people to hunting that may not have necessarily stayed, but they affected those numbers. And yeah. and there's there's gosh, there's so, we talked at the beginning. There's so many young people kind of getting into it. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Duck, duck regulations are very complex because you've had, you got all kinds of things like you've, you've got, um, duck seasons now opening much earlier than they did historically. So you have like so many more days, so many more opening days than we did in the sixties and the seventies. Bag limits are different. Um, hunting period lengths are different, you know, split zones, open close seasons, it goes on and on and on different limits. So the the analytical part of waterfowl harvest can be really really complex. Mm -hmm. It's my there's, there's my a, takeaway though is that uh, with all this stuff is that these regulations are put put in place, but then every state's trying to maximize the number of hunter days for their hunters. Oh yeah, and uh, you know and so it, that's why they split it up. And we we've been doing like Mike Brazier and I, a bunch of us. I don't want to name names because there's a lot of 
really smart people that a lot smarter than me, but we've been working on some of these things. And one of the startling statistics that's been revealed, actually, I think Dale Humberg in Missouri was the one that, that put all this data together. And I'm not going to try to recite the number of opening days that's increased, but it is just unbelievable the amount of like opening days because um, now we have 60 day seasons and states are trying to like, you know, we're going to open here and the next week, this is going to be open. The number of opening weekends now is just like, I don't know if it's double. I can't remember the number. I'm ashamed to admit, I can't remember the number, but it's extraordinary. And the point of that is, is that there's constant disturbance from early in the fall to late winter now. You know, way back when I was a kid, we weren't hunting until the end of January, mm-hmm. right? I mean, North Missouri was like an ice rink. You know, now a lot of years you can hunt North Missouri till the end of January. There may be some ice every now and then, but it's not like locked up, you know. So so through the years with the liberal regulations and and just trying to create hunter opportunity, the number of opening weekends is just staggeringly higher than it was historically. And that's – and we're like – wow, no wonder ducks become nocturnal. I mean, from Minnesota to Louisiana, you know, there's always an opening weekend somewhere, right. you know, and, and ducks get shot and they're moving around and redistributing. So, um, they are very adaptable. Oh, yeah. adapt- yeah. we, we, we put them on the wing, we put them on the move, but they are very adaptable. Yeah. 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 But anyway, well, so it's been really interesting. To very interesting. Very interesting. Need to get you back over here more often. Heck, yeah. Anytime. I love coming over. You guys are great. You're we, right on down the road. We too. need to do one of these. You're not too hungry. Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. I'm, you got some water? Are you uh, water stressed? It, uh, yeah, I'm water stressed. <laughs> Toxie's water stressed right now. Yeah, there's a lot of people on. <laughs> I love that word. We'll go do part one in the duck blind and part two in Anthony's. And there we go. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> My last question for you, and these guys may have one more, but so Dr. Brian Davis, you're in a you're leaning up against an oak tree in a in a bottom. Ducks are funneling in. You're, you're working them. You need uh, you need one more duck to fill out your limit, and a hen mallard comes flying in. Or <laughs> don't you, do this. You gonna you gonna <laughs> shoot her? You gonna not? What I'm, are you gonna do? I've done it, and I've not done it. It depends on <laughs> depends on how good it is. Depends. Well, I've made mistakes too, but yeah, normally, yeah, half the time I'll let her go. It just depends, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the. The great, that's a really good analogy though. Like every, every hen that we don't shoot, that's one that's going to breed. And it's not true. And the great Todd Arnold, who's a really great statistics modeler in our field, people ask him that like every mallard hen that we pass up, is she going to make it back to the prairies and lay eggs? So every dead hen is one less clutch. And like after all the math that he's done, he's like, well, that's like partially true. Probably Half of those will and half of them won't to, mm. to really make it really rough. So, so yeah, every time you shoot a mallard hen, it's not necessarily N minus one in terms of future reproduction. But late in the year, if they've made it that far, um, the difficulty is, though, the mallard hens, that those ducks that time of year, you've probably shot them. They're just so fat. You oh, know? yeah, real so, fat. They're so good. They're They've molted. They're starting to gain all that energy. And boy, I, I will feel guilty. So, <laughs> so a lot of times I'll I'll pass them by. If it's really lean and really thin, maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll kill one. You know, just to, I like the answer. It depends. So, yeah. It depends. Yeah, it depends. Normally I let them go. Yes. I pride myself on the green. Yeah. Yeah. 
And if you get a chance to hunt flooded pecans, oh my God, some of the best hunts I've ever had in my life. We need to build a levee around some pecan orchards. When the rivers, Never heard this. Rivers getting, people are like, do ducks really eat acorns anymore? Some people, even biologists, are kind of skeptical. And the answer is yes, but they don't go to the woods just to eat acorns. That could be a whole nother podcast talking about all that. But pecans, like ducks eat pecans. I'm like, oh my God. If you've ever had the privilege of, a lot of times, you know, pecans are typically in more upland areas, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're in around rivers and you get a great flood, doesn't have to be great, but, a, you know, a flood, and it does reach into those. Um, my last one, it could have done it in, in knee boots. You just kind of lean against the tree and it's like, God, I didn't want to shoot these things. There's just so many. It's like mosquitoes just, golly. I'm like, man, I don't want to shoot. You know, there's so many ducks, you know, and then you're like, all right, let's, let's get them and get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, they love, they love pecans too. That's, that's another one. So get them and get out of here. Get them and get out. That, that, that is, that's sounds like advice. you hunting with Toxie Hayes right there. <laughs> yeah, get them and get out. That's right. All right, Doc. Well, we certainly enjoyed this. Well, we appreciate, I appreciate you guys asking me to come over. So. Oh yeah. We, yeah. we appreciate you being here. So listeners, uh, <laughs> if there's some young people that are interested in uh, maybe taking some courses from yeah. you at Mississippi State, can they follow you on social media? Do you do any of that? It's, it's funny. So yeah, I'm one of those old guard, you know, I don't do a lot of social media, but I, but I hear a lot of things about what people are doing. You know, I, I always kind of threaten them with that. Like, I know what you're up to, but anyway, <laughs> I don't do a lot of that, but I will say we are about to actually hire um, a uh, like a graphics artist type person that's going to do all kind of things, like help us maybe with with some logos. Um, definitely uh, the social media stuff, yeah, graphics and stuff. Like basically talking about, hey, this is what we do. So we we have a really cool website. I'm embarrassed to say I need to update it right now, but we do have. Um, if you go to Mississippi State University, you can read all about us. Um, type in like Kennedy, like you know. James C. Kennedy, Kennedy Waterfowl Program, and it'll go right to the site and you can see all of our stuff. So all that said, we are about to be thrust upwards in that world. We're going to have a person that's going to help, like me and Dr. McConnell, the Upland Game Bird, as you guys know, Mark, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the other professors. But we're we're just going to try to to get the word out even more. So I don't – I've got nine active grad projects right now and, and just trying to keep up with the stuff I really need to do is just, it's, it's great. I love it, but it can be tiring. So I need some help. We need help with some of the extracurriculars, if you will. So we're going to do that. We're about to ramp up on that. Yeah. You know, uh, I've been around some students uh, in the last year or two and heard a lot of them say you're the coolest professor over there. Oh, hey, right. Probably because I cook for them. I, <laughs> I cook gumbo for them twice this year and I think I had shrimp pasta one day and yeah man anyway, i'm gonna take some classes cook specs at the tailgate so they come eat that and like doc this isn't steak you know and i'm like no it's white front and like, oh wow so <laughs> <I'm about> to- <laughs> that's awesome all right mac you got anything to add you got thumbs up we need to it's been a long day we've had the christmas company christmas party company christmas today party. i'm proud yeah. you guys are awake that's yeah. great yeah yeah well. no yeah. snoring dudley <laughs> snuck out of here he had to go to uh a pilates uh yeah i'm sure <laughs> some pilates <laughs> class he's into that now and Lainey got an award today. I won yeah. an award. Mm-hmm. A major award. Mm-hmm. No, not a major mm-hmm. award at all. Participation. Participation yes, award. It is a participation. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> I've been participating for a while. A 30. <laughs> 30 years. Pretty crazy. That's great. That? Yeah, been here it 30. It flies by. It flies by. Been here 30 years. I'll be talking to my kids in class. I'm like, hey, you remember so-and-so? And they're like, 
no doc. I'm like, yeah, that was like six or seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. You guys were like 10, right? You know? yeah. It <laughs> anyway, it flies quick. It does. Yeah. yeah it so. does. Well, thank you for coming. We thank appreciate you. everybody listening. Absolutely. And, uh, man, y'all, uh, if you can't subscribe or, or follow us or whatever, so you'll get these podcasts. Mm-hmm. They'll come right to you. We, we appreciate you doing that. And, uh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, guys. So I'm going to look at Lanny. Uh, why don't you say goodbye, Lanny? Goodbye, Dudley. thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the gamekeeper podcast and be sure to tune in again subscribe to gamekeeper farming for wildlife magazine and don't miss the mossy oak properties fistful of dirt podcast with my good buddy ronnie cuz strickland